If you're joining us for the first time this morning, we have been spending the summer working through Paul's letter to the Galatians. Uh, The Galatian Christians were struggling with a particular type of false teaching that was robbing them of their freedom in Christ. And Paul wanted to correct that. And it strikes me that 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 may be a struggle that we have this morning. So let's read Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that he that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This is the word of the Lord. In a moment when we bow for prayer... Uh, I would ask you to join me in praying for those of us who are part of our congregation but who are ministering elsewhere. Uh, Pastor Guy and uh, Marianne McMinn are serving right now in Bali, which is on the other side of the world, and uh, doing evangelism and uh, helping churches do evangelism there. Uh, We also have two brothers preaching in other churches locally here. Jamie Kinman is preaching at Myriad Church in uh, Weatherford, and Trent is preaching at... Uh, Rock Creek Baptist, so lots going on. And then finally, I'd ask you to pray uh, for wisdom as we continue to look at a huge project together as a church, uh, namely a new building to the south of this building. Uh, When you leave today, uh, we're going to give you some more information about that, and uh, we've scheduled a vote on that particular project for two weeks from today. And so I'm not going to get into detail about that right now, but we do need to be praying fervently for God's direction and wisdom in those matters. Uh, So with that being said, let's bow for prayer. Father, this morning we want to thank you that you have taken care of the most important things. That our salvation, our justification, our not guilty verdict has already been announced in advance, not because we've done anything good to earn it, but because you loved us and sent your son to die in our place. Father, truthfully, that reality is hard to believe sometimes. Because when we look at ourselves and we see our sin and our failings and the ways that we've rebelled, we we see in in bold relief that we don't deserve 
your attention, let alone your love. And so we're often tempted to go after compromise with this truth. And and so this morning, I pray most of all that you would empower us through the preaching of your word to stand in the freedom in which Christ has set us free. Father, I pray that as our brothers and sisters minister throughout the world, uh, that you would cause the same thing to happen in the lives of many others. We think of Pastor Guy and Mary Ann. I pray that you would keep them safe and that you would make them fruitful in their ministry. Uh, Father, we think of Jamie as he preaches. I pray that you would anoint him with your power and that his preaching would be uh, just so convicting and life-giving. And the same thing for Trent as he holds forth as well this morning. And Father, for every church where believers are gathered in your name, I pray that you would bring revival, not through the power of man or the ingenuity of the preacher, but through the working of your spirit. And Father, we do ask for your wisdom. Uh, You've provided so much for us. You've given us so many gifts that we can't even count them. It would take all day. And we're asking for another gift, for your guidance, for your direction uh, with regard to the future of our church and the potential of building a new building. And so, Father, two weeks from now, when we uh, cast our vote, I pray that you would help us know what you want and that you would cause us to just be open to your will and not try to force our will. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that you would bless us with your wisdom and your provision. And uh, Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Following Christ, uh, I'm sure you found, is not a complicated thing. It's not always easy, but it's not complicated. Even a young child can do it. However, there are many ways in which we confuse ourselves with regard to the various teachings of the Bible and the practical entailments of the Christian life. It's not complicated to follow Jesus, but we often complicate it, right? Few ideas, I think, are as easy to misunderstand as the concept that Paul brings to a head here in Galatians chapter 5, namely Christian freedom, or you might say Christian liberty. The confusion over the freedom believers enjoy in Christ ranges from comical all the way to cringeworthy. Uh, I'm sure you've met people who claim to love Jesus, but then also enjoy a freedom to live like the devil. Have you ever met anybody like that? Uh, This was sort of a a running joke between myself and my fellow Bible college students back in the day. Uh, Somebody had the clever idea, and uh, the uh, time on his hands, I guess, to to change the words to a classic hymn text originally written by Philip P. Bliss. And they would sing, Free from the law, O happy condition, Sin all I want and still find remission. And if you're thinking, Jake, you had a very different college experience from me, I assure you, you are right. In 2016, Christian liberty gained national infamy. 
when then-presidential primary candidate Donald J. Trump took the stage at Liberty University and cited a verse from what he called 2 Corinthians, a verse that happened to mention liberty, freedom. That's the whole ball game," he said, as students snickered and his chief rivals, Senators Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, tried to capitalize on the obvious gaffe. Well, not to be overly flippant, but that is the whole ball game, isn't it? Uh, Christian freedom, the freedom that Christ has given us in his work on the cross. While it's true that in the letter to the Galatians, Paul's main theological point comes at the end of chapter 2, the the, the ethical, the practical center of gravity can be found here in chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The Galatians had heard about the life and death and resurrection of Christ, and they wanted to follow him. But the problem was that they were being seduced into giving up the freedoms Christ had bought for them, perhaps in some sense without even realizing that that is what they were doing. Because without a proper understanding of what they had been freed from and what they had been freed to, uh, they may very well lose what had been won for them. Uh, Of course, in their case, the the presenting issue, as we read here in Galatians chapter 5, was this uncomfortable topic of circumcision. The Galatians were being tempted to accept circumcision, that is, to embrace the ritual of circumcision as a means to curry favor with God and earn a spot in his kingdom. And we'll talk in a moment about why that particular problem was a big deal to the Galatian believers, but I do Recognize that for most of you, the real issue, the erosion of freedom in Christ, is probably going to look a little bit different from what it looked like in the churches in Galatia in the first century. Uh, Most of us aren't being kept up at night wondering about circumcision, okay, (laughs) thankfully. Uh, So the presenting issue today might be a little different from what they were back then, but the root problems are still the same. Our freedom in Christ is threatened by the insidious enemy of Jesus plus. A legalistic reliance on the efforts and ingenuity of man rather than on the finished work of Christ. And so what I'd like to do today is to look at our text as a whole and pull out some principles from the circumstances in Galatia that I believe are going to apply directly to our life in Christ today. In in this text, I observe basically three movements. Uh, First, an affirmation, secondly, an admonition, and then finally, an assurance, an assurance. So notice with me in the first place, an affirmation. Here's the affirmation. It's right there in verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set you free. For freedom, Christ has set you free. From the standpoint of grammar and syntax, this sentence is emphatic. It is emphasized. For freedom, Christ has set us free. This is a great summation of the saving work of Christ described in the previous chapters. Christ wants you to be free. He completed the work to make that happen. This is a wonderful truth, and yet it seems to me that it's very possible to misunderstand what Paul is talking about here. And so freedom, uh, one of those concepts that can be molded to mean a lot of different things, we need to be careful to define and understand the way that Paul is using the word. And so I think it would be helpful for us to understand, first of all, what does he not mean when he says, for freedom Christ has set us free? What does he not mean? Well, first of all, he does not mean, he's not talking about volitional freedom here, the freedom of the will, in other words. Uh, 
this is an important theological and philosophical concept. Some people argue that man's will is not free at all. The, the idea of choice is just an illusion. Everything happens by fate or determinism. Uh, others say that humans make free choices because they can do what they really want to do. Other people say, well, you're free. You make free choices but you, because you could have made a different choice. Uh, that's a really huge debate, and it's important, but that's not the kind of freedom that Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about volitional freedom. He's also not talking about political freedom. It's really important for us to understand that that's the case. Again, political freedom is important as well. Uh, the American founding fathers, they wanted to be free from the tyranny of the British government, and uh, they felt that they were breaking the law, and so they wanted to have political freedom. And some of the things that they said, you could argue, uh, had, had roots in Christian ideals. Fair enough. Certainly political freedom is hard won and must be guarded vigilantly, but that's, again, not the kind of freedom that Paul is talking about here. In the third place, he's not talking about freedom to do whatever it is that we desire. He's not talking about freedom to do whatever we want. Now, this is really important to understand because a lot of times when we talk about Christian liberty, in fact, I, I could even say probably most times when we talk about Christian liberty or Christian freedom, we mean something like this. Hey, I'm free to decide what I want to do. I, if I, if I want to come to church on a Sunday, I'm free to do that. But if I want to go to work, I'm free to go to work. If, I'm, if I want to go to the lake and go hiking, I'm free to do that. I'm free. I'm a I've got Christian liberty to do these things, uh, freedom to do whatever I want to do. And there are various degrees of that, right? Uh, this is our world's favorite type of freedom because according to the values and philosophy of the world, I'm not, I don't have any intrinsic design of meaning or significance or value. I, I'm just here by random chance. And so the only meaning and significance that I have at all is the meaning that I make up for myself. And so for me to really be me, I've got to just be able to do whatever I want to do. And anybody who tries to stop me is immoral. Uh, that's not what Paul's talking about when he says that for freedom Christ has set us free. And there's a very simple reason why, that he would never advocate for that type of freedom. Here, here's what it is, and you know it. It's because it's really not freedom at all, is it? To just do whatever we want to do is actually to be enslaved to our desires. Uh, for example, at a certain point in my life, uh, I went from being accountable to my parents for the way that I was spending my money and managing my money to being accountable to just myself for the way that I handled my finances. Uh, in a sense, you could say I was completely free to spend my money however I wanted to spend it because I, it was my money, right? And, and it could have been a lot worse than it was. But I learned the hard way, just like a lot of you, that that, that type of financial freedom isn't necessarily what you might think it is. I mean, you get that paycheck and you say, hey, I can spend this money however I want. I can go to the, the car dealer and get an expensive car. I can go to the cell phone store and I got my expensive cell phone. I've got my new clothes. I can go out to eat all the time. I, I, I'm just as free as a bird with my money. I can get a credit card. I'm free. Okay, so you're free in the sense that you spent your money on whatever you wanted, but then fast forward a month, fast forward a year, fast forward five years. Now you don't feel so free anymore, right? Your free choices have landed you in debt. You owe $20,000 on a car that's worth ten. You can't buy a house because you have no money saved. You have to go to work every single day. You can't take a day off, and you have to do the part-time job just to make ends meet. 
That's not freedom, is it? So it's not freedom to do whatever it is that we want that Paul's talking about. I, I could give you another example. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, we took our kids to preteen camp. You remember that? And uh, kids love camp. One of the reasons kids love camp is because they're free, right? Free to eat all kinds of candy. They, nobody stops them. Uh, we can, I can eat as many sweets as I want. So they pack their suitcase with gummy worms and Sour Patch Kids, and they go to the gift shop, and they buy these massive, disgusting jawbreakers and try to eat the jawbreaker over the course of the week. And they stuff themselves with sweets. Freedom! But then what happens by the end of the second day? They're miserable. Stomach ache, headache, they're not able to enjoy themselves because what they thought was freedom is actually harming them. And, and the same is true with any, any type of freedom to fulfill whatever it is that we want to do. Whether it's uninhibited sexual gratification, whether it's the consumption of drugs, alcohol, or tobacco, it's, whether it's a whole host of other things, we tend to think that freedom means freedom to fulfill our desires, but our desires actually are the most enslaving thing of all, right? So Paul does not mean that Christ set us free in, in a volitional sense, that's a different topic. He doesn't mean political freedom, that's a different topic. He doesn't mean freedom to do whatever we want because that's actually the opposite of freedom, right? Okay, well then in what sense did Christ set us free? In order to answer that question, we have to look at the context of the book as a whole. And when we do that, we find uh, that Paul means to refer to our freedom in basically three areas. First of all, when Christ lived and died excuse me, and rose again on our behalf, he set us free from the sentence of death. He set us free from the sentence of death. Uh, we just sung about this, right? Uh, consider Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ redeemed us. He bought us. He freed us from the sentence of death, from the curse of the law, from the condemnation that God hands down against wickedness and sin. Now, I realize that they, that may not feel like a very big deal to some of you. Freed from the sentence of death, so what? And the reason you think that is because you don't understand the depths of God's justice and our offense against that justice. Or, or maybe you've just trained your conscience and desensitized it against those feelings of conviction. But listen, what I'm saying is that what you know in those fleeting moments that you try to suppress, in those fleeting moments when you're alone with your thoughts and you come to realize just how thoroughly and how helplessly wicked you've been when the curtain is pulled back and you see how selfish and how prideful and how ungrateful, how uncontrolled, how rebellious you've been against the God who made you and you recognize his absolute commitment to justice, what you know in those moments and feel in the hopelessness of yourself and try to push away. That is just a taste of what I'm talking about. Because it is real, friends. It is the sentence of death that the law, the demands of God's righteousness, meets down on sinners. And what Christ has done is he has taken that curse, that sentence of death, and he has freed us from it in his body on the cross. Christ sets his people free from that. How? Because he takes the sentence of death and he puts it on his own body. Right? 
he dies in our place. And so just like a man walking out of death row and, and out into the open air, that's us, free from the sentence of death. Christ sets us free for that freedom. Secondly, Christ sets us free from the satanic powers. Christ sets us free from the satanic powers. Uh, Paul said as much in chapter 1, verse 4. He says, he delivered us from this present evil age. What is the present evil age? It's the age in which we live that's dominated by Satan. The whole world, John says, is under the power of the evil one. Uh, according to chapter 4, verse 8, we were formerly enslaved to those that are not gods. We were serving the elemental spirits of the world. Uh, these are all different ways of saying the same thing. We are, before we encounter Jesus Christ, we were beholden not only to the condemnation of the law, but we were actually living in the realm of the devil himself. Think about it. I mean, he had legal warrant to accuse you before the throne of God and say, look at this wretch. Look how sinful. Look how disobedient and rebellious. And no one could say a word in opposition because it was true. But Christ set us free. He took those filthy rags that we were wearing and he took them off and he gave us a new, white, pure, clean robe. Amen. He set us free from this system of evil in which evil men cooperate with evil powers and construct evil cultures and, and institutions. He set us free from these things. He rescued us from the realm of the satanic powers. And, and then thirdly, Christ set us free from the sinful passions, from our own sinful passions. Paul's going to dive more deeply into this reality in the coming verses, and we'll get into those next week. But suffice it to say that through the sacrifice of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit, we no longer need to serve sin. So what that means is that desire that we have to go out and do things that we know are ungodly and unrighteous and against God's law, because of the presence of the Spirit and because of the work of Christ, we don't have that power holding us back anymore, and we don't have to live that way anymore. He set us free. We don't have to fulfill the sinful passions anymore. So it's, it's in this sense that Christ has set us free, free from the sentence of death, free from the satanic powers, free from the sinful passions. But one of the things that Paul wanted the Galatians to understand is that those freedoms, as wonderful as they are, and if you understand and if you order your affections in, in accordance with what the Bible teaches and you really realize who God is and who you are, you'll recognize just how precious that freedom is. But what, he wants us to understand those freedoms, but he also wants us to understand that they're not automatic. He says, for freedom Christ has set you free. Stand, therefore. You stay in those freedoms. And don't be yoked again to bondage. We have to stand in them. We have to fight for them. And it's this very reality that the Galatians were struggling to grasp, and that leads us to our second movement in Paul's argument. Uh, notice with me not only the affirmation, uh, Christ has set us free, but secondly, the admonition. Here's Paul's admonition. I'll, I'll summarize it. Beware of the leaven of legalism. Beware of the leaven of legalism. What's leaven? Uh, Paul says in verse 9 that a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. What does that mean? Well, leaven's basically the yeast or, uh, I guess, a, a chunk of sourdough that you put into a, a lump of dough, bread dough, and, and it makes it rise. It's what makes all those little tiny air bubbles in your sandwich bread. Now, I'm more into eating bread than making bread. But it seems to me that it only takes a tiny amount, right, 
just a tiny amount of leaven that will leaven the whole lump. The whole batch of bread dough rises with just a little bit of leaven, and it just takes a little time for that leavening agent to sort of infiltrate the dough, and those air pockets are a byproduct of those reproductive processes, and it just flows throughout the entire thing. And what Paul is saying is, just like it takes only this little tiny bit of leaven to infiltrate the dough, it only takes a little bit of Jesus plus to infiltrate your heart and to infiltrate the entire church. Just a little bit. There's something contagious about it. There's something that makes it want to spread and grow. So just like the Jews in the Old Testament times, just like they every year during the Feast of Unleavened Bread had to go through their house and find all the leaven and clear it away and throw it out. Paul's saying you've got to do the same thing. You've got to go through your heart. You've got to go through the church. And if you see any of this leaven of legalism, you've got to say, go away. (laughs) Stop. You've got to reject it. You have to root it out because if you don't, it's going to spread everywhere. Uh, Jesus used to warn his disciples along the same line. Skipper read it for us earlier. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Beware of their teaching. Beware of their self-righteous, ethnocentric, man-centered teaching because it is contrary to the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what was that leaven? What was that little teaching that kind of infiltrated everything else in the Galatians case? It was, according to Paul, it was this idea that they needed to be circumcised in order to be a part of God's family. Uh, Notice what he says in verse 2. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You'll be obligated to keep the whole law. You will be severed from Christ. You'll fall away from grace. That's pretty serious. Uh, The Galatians may have thought that they could sort of hedge their bets, right? Hey, we love Jesus. And it seems like he's taking care of everything by dying on the cross, rising again. But just to be sure, let's go ahead and follow through on circumcision. We'll keep the Sabbath. We'll follow all the feast days. We'll keep the Jewish law. We're believing in Christ, but just in case that's not enough, let's just make sure we're squared away in terms of the works of the law. And I know, again, that's probably not a temptation that you share, that particular issue, right? It seems sort of bizarre to us that this uncomfortable little surgery should play so central a role in the religious beliefs of early Christians. So let me just explain briefly, why was circumcision such a big deal to them? Uh, There are several reasons. First of all, it it was at least superficially biblical, at least superficially biblical. It's had this veneer of feeling like it was right because it was in the Bible. I mean, a new Christian, you could go up to him and say, hey, it says right here in, in the Law of Moses that you need to be circumcised. Uh, Okay, I don't know very much about the Bible. I guess you're right. So it was superficially biblical, and they were easily confused by that. Secondly, circumcision was a matter of national identity for many Jews. It was deeply ingrained in their way of thinking. Uh, You have to remember uh, that Jewish national identity during the first century was shaped by the experiences of their forefathers a century or two before, leading up to the time of Christ. They suffered mightily at the hands of a tyrant named Antiochus Epiphanes and many who came after him. Uh, according to, to, for example, First Maccabees, uh, an apro- uh, apocryphal book of historical importance, it, it seems to me that, from what I've un- read, that this is mainly historically accurate, uh, this whole controversy seemed to swirl around the boundary markers between 
the Gentiles, the Greek people that, are in, that were in charge at the time, and the Jews, these cultural boundary markers. They had to, uh, they, they ate different food, they circumcised their infant sons, they rest on the Sabbath, and, and of course, Antiochus, he didn't like that. He wanted them to integrate in because that would increase his power over the people. And so when Antiochus started to put pressure on the Jews, one of the very first things they did was actually to establish a gymnasium in the city of Jerusalem. And if you know anything about ancient culture, you know, and I'm not trying to be gross here, but it's just a reality, they would exercise in these gymnasiums without any clothes on. And so you immediately knew who was in and who was out, right? And they actually, the Jews, they were, they were feeling the pressure. And many, many Jews during that early time, they actually went through a surgery to sort of reverse the process, believe it or not, because they were pressured into integrating in with the Gentiles. And, and if, you, if you didn't fall in line, you suffered. It was really gruesome. And so in 1 Maccabees and some of these other apocryphal books, there are these stories, story after story of these heroes of the faith who, who held on to circumcision and, and uh, the food laws and keeping the Sabbath. And uh, So then fast forward to Paul's day. That's in their history. That's in their background. And, and then someone comes along and says, oh, you don't need that. <laughs> That's not necessary anymore because Christ has come and done away with these boundary markers. No, for them, circumcision was a badge. It, it was a way to identify with these ancient heroes who resisted the persecutions of the Gentiles. So uh, for them, it was about, hey, I'm in. I'm a part of the club. So it was superficially biblical. It was central to their national identity. Thirdly, it was external. It had to do with a visible mark on the body rather than the change that takes place in the heart. Isn't that attractive to us? We like to be focused on what is external because then we can easily sort ourselves out between who's holy and who's not. Finally, circumcision is a work of man rather than a work of God. Yes, it was originally instituted as a sign of God's favor on the children of, man, uh, of Abraham. Uh, but from the perspective of the false brothers, it had become a way, who, uh, a way to tell who is really committed and who's not. I mean, think about it. It was a huge commitment. And there's something about a radical act of devotion that speaks to us in our pride. We feel as though we've earned our spot. And so for these reasons, circumcision had become the leaven of legalism for the Galatians. And I know, again, it's probably not a struggle for you today, but I think we can glean some principles from their experience that'll help us sort of diagnose whether a similar infection is infesting our hearts today. Uh, throughout the sermon series on Galatians, I've had many moments where I've begun to realize just how insidious, just how sneaky this Jesus plus gospel is, how easily it sneaks into our hearts. And I've struggled with, hey, how do I help people? Because we often don't even see it until way later that we, we're infected by this false gospel. And, and so I've, I've tried to think, how do I help people? And, and so in order to apply Paul's admonition to our circumstances today, I've come up with three diagnostic questions for you. And I would just encourage you to write these down and really meditate on these. But here's the first question. Am I more focused on that which is external as opposed to my internal relationship with God? Am I more focused on what's external versus my heart's relationship with God? 
See, that external focus is a sign that you may be relating to God on the basis of your performance and your work and your achievement instead of living by faith in Christ's work. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that external things are completely irrelevant. But isn't it our tendency to focus more on the way we look than on our heart's relationship? Think about this. Think about the last time that you were late to church, for example. Uh, how did you feel? Some of you don't, it doesn't bother you. <laughs> but for many of you, that is mortifying uh, it, it, because you think it looks bad. Some of you would rather not come to church at all than show up late because of, you're focused on what's external. <laughs> uh, you focus on the way you dress, the way your house looks, the way the kids behave when you're out in public. I mean, you're, you're at home with the kids and you let them kind of run rampant. They're doing their thing. You don't, it doesn't bother you. But then you get out to the grocery store, and then get over here. <laughs> you're not discipling your children. You're focused on your reputation, right? We all do it, right? Am I focused more on the external versus my heart's relationship with God? Second question. Do I struggle with anger? Do I struggle with anger? Think about it. What is anger? It's an emotional reflection of my heart's belief that an injustice has occurred, right? It's, it's my emotions flaring up because my heart says, I've been wronged. And so that may be a very strong indicator that you're living apart from the grace of God. You see, a Christian who is constantly angry is a Christian who has lost perspective, folks. It's like the man who was forgiven in Jesus' parable. Remember, he was forgiven this huge amount of money. And then what does he do? He goes out and he finds his friend that owed him 50 bucks and he, and he grabs him by the lapels and he says, pay me what you owe. That's an angry man, right? You want to know why you're angry all the time? It's because your heart isn't saturated with gospel truth. Imagine, like really imagine living in the new creation and enjoying everything that Christ bought for you you haven't earned any of it. You can't lose it. You can't exhaust all of its joys. Every day, every moment is like a new wonder. Your happiness never ends. Do you think that in that moment, 10,000 years from now, that you are going to care about the fact that your brother made more money than you do in this life? It's not going to matter. <laughs> Uh, do you think that you're going to care that your wife cheated on you in that moment? See, whether it's something silly and small or something that we consider very big, we still need that perspective, friends. And as strange as it might sound to us, locked as we are in our earthly present, we are not going to be kept up at night by those things, small or large, though they may seem now if we are focused on what Christ has done and his, the way that he set us free from the sentence of death and the sinful passions and the realm of Satan, like if we're really living out that gospel truth and that anger, I'm not saying it goes away completely. It's possible to be angry and sin not, right? But I'm no, no longer that bitter person because the gospel's taking root. That's the perspective of a believer. Uh, it, Am I focused on externals? Am I angry? Here's the third question, and this is actually 
a multi-part question. But think about this. Ask yourself, what's my orientation to others? What's my orientation to others? Am I, do I compare myself to them all the time? Do I condemn them all the time? Do I cut people down? Do I cut them off from my life? For example, let's say your wife mentions to you in a friendly way that the way that you've been talking to her hurts her feelings. Maybe this is not an imagination thing. Maybe this has happened very recently. You know, the way you've been talking to me, you've been very hurtful. And then what is your immediate response? If you're like me, preferably in your mind, not out loud, this is what you say. Well, at least I don't talk to you the way that my dad used to talk to my mom. You compare, right? Hey, would you rather me be like so-and-so who sits around all the time and doesn't work very hard? We cut other people down. Or how about when you meet someone you think might be better looking or smarter or more talented or more disciplined in their character than you do? What is the temptation? Isn't it to find something about them that you can condemn so that you can cut them down to your level and feel a little bit better about yourself? This is a sign, folks, that we have, we have embraced a performance-based, achievement-based, works-based, man-centered orientation to life instead of saying, God loves me, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Why do we do these things? It's because we've embraced the gospel of Jesus plus. We think it's about our own achievement, our own performance, and deep down inside, we know, here's God's standard. I'll never meet it, but at least I can maybe be better than the next guy. We could spend a lot of time on each of these diagnostic questions, But the truth is that a person who is preoccupied with externals, a person who's always bitter and angry, a person who's always comparing and cutting down others, is a person, folks, who is not living by the grace of Christ. And here's what Paul says. This is serious. You're in danger of being cut off from Christ, severed, falling from grace. In other words, the stakes are extremely high. And folks, don't misunderstand. He's not saying that because he wants the Galatians to think they're going to lose the salvation they possess. He's saying that to wake them up. Like if you embrace circumcision, if you embrace the works of the law, you're showing that you're not believing in Jesus. And guess what? (laughs) Believers have the Holy Spirit. They think differently. So you need to change because you're living like an unbeliever right now. And and he's serious about it. Did you read verse 12, the last verse? He says that for people who are preaching this, who are upsetting the Galatian believers, I I wish the knife would slip. That's his admonition. Christ has set us free, but beware of the deadly leaven of legalism. Cut it out of your life. Run away from anyone who's teaching you to embrace it. But he doesn't just leave us with this affirmation or with the admonition. He finally offers a word of assurance. Assurance. Here's the assurance. Believers believe. Believers believe. Think about this. In other words, if you are in Christ, then through the power of the Spirit, you are going to heed this warning. You are going to stand for freedom. You are going to keep fighting against the pool of Jesus. Plus, look at verse 10. I have confidence, he says in verse 10, I have confidence that... uh, 
in the Lord that you'll take no other view than mine. Why does he say that? It's because he knows that the Spirit was present in their midst. Even after everything he said to the Galatians, every word of rebuke, he says, through the Spirit, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. In other words, he's confident that these brothers, confused though they may be, have the Spirit of God. And because they have the Spirit of God, there's something in their hearts that answers yes to gospel truth. That, that hears the assurance of forgiveness and the love of God in Christ and says, I believe that today. This is the hope he's talking about. It's not I hope so, right? It's I'm confident and I know that this is going to happen. I expect, not on the basis of my works, but on the basis of the blood of Christ, that I will enter into my inheritance as a righteous son of God. I believe and know that my verdict has already been announced in advance, not guilty, I believe that I'm no longer a slave, but a son. And that, in, that spirit-empowered faith produces confident hope, and it changes the way we live. Because here's what it does. When we really stand in that freedom, I'm now free to go out and, and love others. I, I don't have to get what's mine anymore because Christ has already given me everything. So now I can give. Now I can live in love. Somebody hurts you in the, even the slightest degree, you're living by the works of the law, it's like they throw a grain of sand into the precise engine of your heart, right? It just grinds you down. But a person living by faith in the Spirit, that grain of sand, that's nothing. Because I know Christ has forgiven me and I'm accepted by the most important, most wonderful being in the universe. You see, a Spirit-led believer whose hope is in Christ is free. He can say, I forgive you because Christ has forgiven him. He can be generous with his wealth because money doesn't define him and the pleasures it buys don't control him. He can have joy in the midst of suffering because he remembers that in just a little while he'll be with Christ. This is freedom. That's the freedom I want to stand in. That's the freedom I want to go after, folks. Freedom from the things of this life, the things of this world. Freedom from the sentence of death. Freedom from the satanic powers. Freedom from simple, sinful passions. Freedom to believe to hope, and to love. And you have examples of this in our church. I'm so thankful. Find somebody who's been walking with Jesus for a long time who really loves others, and you follow them, and you learn about their faith. Because that's not, you can fake it for a little while, but you can't fake it for very long. There comes a point in time when you can't fake it anymore, but if you look around, you'll find we have plenty of examples of people who are standing in freedom. They're free from the things that, that hold us down in this life. Isn't it wonderful to see? And I hope you're one of them. I hope you lay aside your reliance on your own works and begin to live as though Jesus paid it all because, friends, he has. He has. Would you pray with me now? Father, uh, we want to thank you for the freedom Christ purchased for us. Thank you for the great cost he paid. Thank you for taking the initiative when we were still sinners, still your enemies, you went after us. Not because we twisted your arm or because we got your attention, but because of your loyal love. Father, I pray that if there are any in this room today who are shackled to another gospel, 
another vision of the good life. That through your spirit, you would set them free today. Free from the sentence of death. Free from the sinful passions. Free from the realm of the satanic powers. Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for many. Uh, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.